and welcome to Conversations 360 Podcasts and this second series of Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. As with our first series, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what's taking place in and between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, and you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. Please note the views and opinions expressed here are those of the participants as individuals and not intended to reflect the policy or position of their companies or organizations. Almost all the podcasts in this second series take place in Hong Kong. Now, you'll occasionally hear background noises, evidence that these are not studio-based discussions, but unscripted, candid comments from people with lots to share about the transformational changes taking place between Asia and the West. Today, different from 2,000 years ago, is that West has continued to be quite dominant, dominant in the world in many fields, but the East is rising, starting with Japan and the, you know, the four tigers, such as Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea, and then now the big boy finally woke up, and that's China in the last 30 years. And so Asia has been rising. So more or less, today is the first time in 2,000 years that the East and the West are on more or less equal terms. That was Ronnie Chan, the quintessential global citizen. He chairs the Hang Lung Group, which is a leader in Hong Kong's property markets for over 40 years, with mega developments that now span mainland China's geography as well. Another of his companies, Morningside, owns companies in manufacturing, public transport, outdoor advertising, media, healthcare, online game operators, high tech and biotech investments in mainland China, Southeast Asia. Europe, and North America. Every time I've met with Ronnie, he's been dapper in a well-tailored suit, even if he just got off a plane, which is what happened in this conversation, and always a beautiful tie. Urbane, sophisticated, and smart, Ronnie takes a long view. He's adept at placing current events in historical context. He's generous and a great conversationalist with a sense of humor. Ronnie's influence is felt globally beyond business. Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health is named after his father in recognition of the unsolicited $350 million gift that he and his brother made to the school in 2014. It was the largest gift in the university's 378-year history. In this episode of Asia and the West, Ronnie talks of the significance of big boy China's waking up and the surprising consequences, at least to many Westerners, that this will have. For example, 10, 15 years ago, I told my friends, I said, you watch it. The future wealthy of China are those who have never been to the West. You'll hear what he means by that, and we talk about the challenges to Asia and the West collaborating in a positive way. And he says, While we say that technology interaction between the East and the West uh, will improve a lot of things, uh, break down some misunderstandings, some only, huh? mm-hmm. uh, and, and erase some uh, prejudices, which are good, let's not go so far as to forget that human nature and the tribalism in human nature uh, may yet come back to haunt us. Ronnie dismisses Westerners who are fearful of China. People today say, but we don't know what's China's intention. 
It's fools and ignorant people, as far as I'm concerned, that say that. Read history. Uh, so China can be the only other strongest guarantor of global peace together with the United States. We talk about this and much more, including Jack Ma's influence in buying Hong Kong's leading newspaper, the South China Morning Post, and how China will play its role in the international community, and lots more from Ronnie Chan, whose opinions on multiple topics are sought after and respected. So let's get started. I am here in Hong Kong at the Asia Society, which is really quite a splendid place in Hong Kong, in, uh, in almost a forest-like setting. It's quite remarkable, and when you come to Hong Kong, you must spend some time here. In any event, I'm with Ronnie Chan, and you'll have heard all about him and what he's done and what he has yet to do in this part of the world and globally. So it's really a delight for me to be talking with you, Ronnie. Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcast and to this series, Asia and the West. Great to have you, Susan. Great. So here's my first question, Ronnie. When I mention conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what does that bring to mind to you? What, what does that mean? Well, that has been discussed uh, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. How do you mean? The Silk Road. Yeah. The East and the West have always uh, interacted one form or another. However, what is different today than ever is that I think this must be the first time in 2,000 years when the East and the West are more or less on equal footing. Ah. When you discuss, talk to each other, um, even with husband and wife, usually one party is more dominating because he is the breadwinner, because he is bigger, or because he's smarter, or she is smarter, whatever. One party is more dominant mm -hmm. in every family usually. Mm -hmm. That's true. In East-West relations, 2,000 years ago, during the Roman Empire days, uh, China was experiencing a big surge in the civilization during the Han Dynasty. Mm -hmm. And so that was the last time, as far as I can tell, where East and West were both uh, strong and advanced culturally and otherwise. For the last 2,000 years, it has been a pretty lopsided game. Basically, Asia has continued to rise uh, until approximately 1800, whereas the West uh, Wayne, uh, for all the reasons which we will not go into here, but we all know them, um, the Middle Ages, for example, and then the 15th century, 16th century, you begin to have Renaissance and <coughs> uh, rationalism and, uh, and then later industrial uh, colonization, industrialization and so forth. And so you, for the last, between, say, 1500 and uh, 1900, the West rose, while the East waned. Yes. So, if you were living today like you and I do, Susan, we don't know a time, because you and I were not around 2,000 years ago, when the East and the West were both strong. But of course, in those days, very few people know that East and West are both strong because of lack of transportation and communication. Mm -hmm. But today, different from 2,000 years ago, is that West has continued to be 
quite dominant in the world in many fields. But the East is rising, starting with Japan and the four tigers, such as Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea. And then now the big boy finally woke up, and that's China in the last 30 years. And so Asia has been rising. So more or less, today is the first time in 2,000 years that the East and the West are on more or less equal terms. But unlike 2,000 years ago, communication and, tele and transportation had made it such that we know that both are strong. Um, and so mankind is facing an issue that has never been confronted before, and that is how to live with one another mm. between the East and the West. Uh, 2,000 years ago, it's easy. You just close your door and that's it. <laughs> to travel from one to the other would take you a year, two years, three years. Isolation, which is a natural consequence, right? Correct. But today, I just flew back yesterday from the Middle East, and I spend 70% of my time on the road. Um, and I go to the United States every month. I know. I go to the Europe every month. So today, that issue that you asked, Susan, is far more significant than ever before because we have no choice but to live with one another. Are we prepared for it? No, we are not. Well, having said that, and, and what a great way to really put it into historic context, my next question would be, so we are aware of each other's strength, but how well does, how well does the West understand what's happening in China? What do they know about China? Is, that, is it understood? No, I would say the knowledge of the of China, or not just China, but the East, but say China, China yeah. is really lacking for several reasons. Number one, uh, the <clears throat> the language much more Chinese speak English than Westerners speak Chinese. I'm aware of that. In Number fact, one. I understand, by the way, that there are more people in China studying English than there are English-speaking people in the world. <laughs> You, you may well be right. It's amazing. Amazing. So, so that's one. So language is one. This, the other one is uh, the West, Western civilization is basically a much more open one. You are what you are, and you speak what you have in mind. Whereas Asians, and not just the Chinese, the Chinese are, are not the worst. Mm -hmm. Some other Asian people, uh, from all the way from Japan, Korea, China, all the way down to Indonesia. The Chinese, I mean the Asians, don't always say what is on their mind. And they say, it in, even if they do say it, they say it in such a way that you really couldn't figure out. Do they really mean it? Do they really not mean it? Mm -hmm. Is it just out of politeness that they say it? Try to talk to a Japanese in Indonesia. Try, try to talk to a Japanese. Um, uh, I was told that in, in Thailand, you never say no to somebody. Uh, it, Hard it, to make a business transaction. Right, so I said, what do you do when, <laughs> when, when if you're a girl and a, and a, and a, and a guy wants to say, can I go out with you? And you don't say no when you don't like a guy or don't trust the guy. This is a whole new level of dating. In Japan, uh, when they say, uh, they never say yes or no. When they say probably, that means yes. When they say possibly, that means no. Mm. Right? So the Chinese... It's in, in fact, in that regard, not the worst. But nonetheless, whatever it is, it is history, it's culture. You have to respect them. And that's just the way they are. 
And so it is far more difficult for the West to understand the East. Now, you thought there was a third thing, though, or did well, I miss one? The, the, well, there are many things more. One thing is the history. History. Mm. Um, the West, as Henry Kissinger often say, uh, was living in caves. It's true. When the Chinese was a very advanced civilization. And so history does play into one's mindset. Why is America so strong today? Because it doesn't have history. You don't need history. You can have a plain piece of paper and start all over again. Of course, on the basis of whatever was there in Europe at the time, 200 some years ago. Uh, and they don't have the package of history. So they can really grow very, very fast and become very, very successful and powerful. Whereas the East has, is, uh, is steep in history. It has historic package, but on the other hand, it is also good. Like, many, like everything else in life, there's some good Dual. aspect to it mm -hmm. and some bad mm -hmm. aspects of it. And so the Chinese, for example, look at things and think far more longer term, whereas the West is far more pragmatic. Of course, you have the religion aspect of it mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. The West is very black and white because of the Judeo-Christianity background. It's heaven and hell, salvation and perdition, God and devil, you know, everything is black and white. Whereas in the East, everything is much more gray. Uh, among other reasons, Relationship means a lot more to the Chinese. Uh, <clears throat> and in a big family, you have to know how to play it, so to speak, mm -hmm. among the mm -hmm. siblings. Uh, and so the Asians can, can live with a lot more uncertainty. The West keep asking for, uh, for an answer, yes or no. And the Asians, from the Japanese to the Koreans to the Chinese to the Indonesians, don't like to give answers such as yes and no. And so th these are all reasons why I think uh, the West is having a hard time understanding the East. I think that it's a lot easier for the East to understand the West. The so, West is a much more open system. So having said that, has the conversation or have communications changed over the last several years? Has technology shifted this at all? Has there been what's different now than, say, a decade ago or even five years ago? I sense that there is a difference. There is a difference, absolutely, because of technology. But that said, let's not underestimate history. Uh, technology, let's talk about a positive side of it. Technology today, I remember 20 years ago, uh, an American friend from Minnesota visited my uh, family with their children. We sent the boys upstairs after dinner. And within 10 minutes, they're best of friends because they all play the same video mm, games mm -hmm, and, you mm -hmm. know, uh, watch the same TVs and as, as the same songs. So technology has that aspect of it. But if anyone were to think that technology will be able to negate uh, 4,000 years of history and culture, then I'll say, you are really, really naive. Well, additionally, it seems to me that it it appears to make less important the actual requirement of face-to-face -face connection, whereas to me, I feel it's probably never been more important. Correct. I agree with you. We, we think that we understand each other because we've been emailing each other for a long, 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 long time. But 
nothing replaces the physical person-to-person -person sit down and talk. About 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I served on the board of a British company, a bank. And once in a while, I couldn't attend a meeting. Then, you know, there's about eight, eight years. So I said, said to the chairman, can I, you know, once a year or at most two, two times, uh, uh, just do um, phone. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, a video. Uh huh. Video. So you conference. can see me. Mm -hmm. And after trying it out for two times, the chairman came in and said, "Ronnie, I think it's much better that you physically attend." Okay. That's well, true. I you're was always attending anyway. It's only in very, yeah. very rare. You're cases. you're in the room, but you're not in the room. Right. Mm -hmm. So 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 nothing can replace mm -hmm. the physical connection. So we need more and more of that. Clearly. In and fact more than ever before, as you well said earlier. Well, it seems to me when you look at China, just taking China as an example, we know that the China Chinese are very intent on education, and many of them have sent and are even in the middle classes attempting to send their kids to school elsewhere to, to enrich their education, which is not so true in the other direction. Other direction meaning? Meaning Westerners. N nobody says, gee, I want to make sure that my kids go to school in Beijing mm -hmm. for college. Mm -hmm. It's just, it, 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 we're not there, we're not at that place yet. Mm -hmm. But I'm interested especially in what's happening within China because we know that there is great innovation taking place. And yet people have said, well, it's sort of surprising because lower education is done through rote learning and that doesn't inspire uh, uh, independent thinking, and yet somehow there are great things and innovative things coming out of China. Is that homegrown? Is it because of these kids being sent away and they come back? It's, is it expats' influence? Where is this coming from? Well, first of all, what the West said that you repeated just now, much of it's true, it's correct. But to make that simple statement into the complete truth <laughs> is very dangerous. Of course. 10, 15 years ago, I told my friends, I said, you watch it. The future wealthy of China are those who have never been to the West. Ah. Now, that is not to negate the, inf the importance of those who did go overseas. If you were to look at the last 100 years, if not 150 years of Asia's history, they've always said people, to Yale University, for example, exactly. and many others, uh, Oberlin and wherever else. <clears throat> and, and so they come back to Asia, they come back to China, and they become influential, technical uh, people uh, that contribute greatly to society. But in China today, I told people 10 years ago that you watch it, I said, a lot of those most successful are those who have never been overseas. Now that is interesting. You're the first person who's mentioned this to me and suddenly that explains a number of things. Some of the people I've met there who haven't, they say I can't wait to get to New York, but they haven't been there and yet they are on a trajectory. That's very exciting to think about actually. Consider uh, Tencent's chairman, mm. Robin Lee of uh, Baidu. Jack Mao lived overseas for a little bit, uh, but many of the others have never been overseas. Um, that is not to say that those who have been overseas cannot succeed either. But all I'm saying is that a lot of the really, really super rich uh, in China will be totally homegrown. And many of the technology will also be homegrown. 
because the world is so connected these days, you can get technology, you can hire the best of people, uh, as long as you're of open mind, you have basic education, uh, and the Chinese certainly have this emphasis on education, as we all know. Uh, and, and, and so the dynamism of these guys thinking uh, is just amazing. Well, I think this is a piece, especially you're having said that and just thinking about it myself, this message is one that people in the West have to hear and think about as they feel superior in some ways and are missing the boat on the opportunities in this globalism. You mentioned Jack Ma, and I wanted to ask you a question about that. So Alibaba, his company, has bought the South China Morning Post, and they have just instilled a new CEO, as you know, probably I guess a week ago that he actually took office. An American vacation for two weeks. Yeah, and look what happens when you're gone. Whole it changes. So anyway, this guy with whom I met earlier this week, I'm fascinated by him, Gary Liu. Um, he's a he's a technologist. He's a techie. And he's a young guy. I was he's talking. young. He's 33 years old. Right. Very impressive. And my question of you is, when I've talked to people since I met with him, I've talked to them. I said, Wow, this is huge. If the if the SCMP really is intending to become that voice of China to the world, it could accomplish what I'm hoping in a small way to do with my Asia and the West podcast. I mean, this is a big deal. And I've met, been met with a lot of skepticism who say, oh, everybody understands that Jack Ma's made a deal with the, you know, with Beijing. This is not going to be an independent piece of journalism. This is going to, what, what's your view on that? You must know a lot more about this, obviously, than I do. First is there all, a pop is that possible? Ma, forget about Jack Ma, forget about Post. Okay. These days, news is taken over by the internet, right? And the quality of there is just no assurance. Okay. Newspapers are dying, and in the West, at least, and in the old days, in this part of the world as well. Uh, say Taiwan, for example. In the old days, they have two newspapers groups mm -hmm. that are really quality, um, <clears throat> but now there's almost none. Uh, in America, all the newspapers are dying. But at least in newspapers, you have some standard of journalism. journalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where it's on the internet, you've got none. And how do you, I don't want to use the word control, but how do you ensure quality and more or less accurate, or honestly accurate, and educated views on the internet is a thing that mankind has yet to figure out. Well, I, I would push back a little bit on what you said about, I mean, you're right about, in general, uh, that the newspaper business is dying. Certainly people aren't, aren't buying paper. But there are some examples, and they're still trying to figure it out, but the Times in New York and the Washington Post and, and a few others are, are, because they have gotten savvy, finally, about the web, are are pushing things in the internet that is pretty impressive because they're able to retain some of their great journalists to do that. I would assume that that's the... That's because they insisted on having uh, a paper, a physical paper, mm. with and with journalists that are stationed from around the world. Right. But even then, that number has been cut. To yes, you're right. So what does that say about SCMP? Is that possible? Could they be... Could First of they all, be? SCMP is never a place that I read to get about to get about to learn about China. Sorry, Susan. Those who don't read Chinese have no choice but to read 
okay. Hong Kong newspaper uh -huh. and South China Morning Post is the more uh, credible one in the English language. They are always a day late uh -huh. for long years. Uh -huh. So it, it is only to the outside world. Uh, so my concern go way beyond just Jack Ma hiring this 33-year-old tech mm -hmm. kid and all that stuff. I mean, that to me is, uh, uh, is, is nothing as a problem, potential problem, compared to how the Internet is dominating news uh, that has been increasingly so for the last 10 years and will be increasing mm -hmm. over the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts about what's the antidote here? You know, if I do, I should be receiving a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, that's true. I'm everybody's just not smart enough. Everybody's working on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm mm -hmm. just not smart enough. So, go since I brought it up about the SCMP. What about Hong Kong in general? What's Hong Kong's future vis-a-vis -vis mainland China? You've you've been here. You are you are at the core of what is uh, important about Hong Kong. Oh, that's not true. Well, Susan. I'm an outsider. I always prefer to be an outsider, so I never want to be in the. Okay, but whatever role you play, this is—it's it, an important People one. People say that, but. Okay, well, so. I'm going to believe it. Okay. Well, certainly you have your views. So, has Hong Kong? Does it have a future that's still going to be relative? Can it be independent of mainland China, or is this simply? Are we on a road in which it becomes a fabulous, but nonetheless, truly Chinese city? Well, first of all, your question has a problem embedded in it. And probably is, most of mine do. No, <laughs> in this one in particular. Okay. Uh, we'd be different from the mainland China, assuming that there's something wrong with China. Now, there's a lot of things wrong with China. Uh, but on the other hand, um, Hong Kong, objectively looking at Hong Kong vis-a-vis -vis the mainland of China, it is inevitable that Hong Kong's role will diminish over time. Mm -hmm. Because China is merging together into the, into mm -hmm. the global world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what we all want? That China should become a member, uh, uh, a, a responsible member, which it is, I believe, of the international community. And when that happens, in economics, for example, in finance, in professional uh, uh, fields, uh, in politics, in many things. As China uh, grows economically, all these other influences will rise. And let's face it, China is the second largest economy in the world. And potentially the largest. Relative mm -hmm. to, relatively speaking, is the role of Hong Kong will diminish even if we do the absolute best job possible, which no government does. <laughs> but even if we do, you cannot prevent China from being integrated into the global community, starting with economics, but more uh, gradually also politics and many other fields. So Hong Kong people should understand one thing. That is our importance, our significance to the mainland of China will inevitably diminish even if we do the absolute best job. If that is the case, that means China is doing the right thing. China is integrating in the re into the rest of the world. 
Then, as not, I, I never put a hat of, as a Hong Konger on, although I love Hong Kong. Putting a hat on as a global citizen. Mm. Well, that's, that's the wonderful. key. That's the key. That's wonderful. That's, that's wonderful. What, that's what I want my kids to be. I think everybody, ultimate, well, I shouldn't say everybody. We have a lot of people that don't understand globalism, that think that somehow we can go back to what you talked about several thousand years ago, which, of course, is not going to happen. Um, but I, I think your, your perspective is, is a fascinating one, and it's important to really contemplate because it, it influences the way we go about how we look to the future. My, my view about this next century is if we do it right, this should be the century of collaboration. No country is big enough to do any of this stuff by itself. Now, it sounds like you're pretty bullish about mainland China. Your optimism is based on what drives it the most about where it's going and how it can have this. Let me first give a caveat to whatever we were saying before. Let's not get our own optimism overly so. Mm -hmm. Because I'm a believer of human nature. At the end of the day, human nature will trump everything, including technology. And human nature, as Senator J. Rockefeller, the son of the founder of this organization, Asia Society, said to me one time, he said, at the end, people are tribal. Mm -hmm. In some parts of the world, such as where I just came from yesterday, (laughs) people are very tribal. But even in very sophisticated societies, such as the United States. As a Chinese-American, I look around and I go to a restaurant and I see Asian kids in one table, non-Asian kids in other tables. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that the integration has been far more than perhaps in most other places in the world, which is good because as my personal background was such that I have no Chinese friends for the ten years that I, the first ten years that I lived in the United States. I never go to Chinatown. I said, I have much more hamburger than me than rice. <laughs> and, and all my friends are basically local, local people. But I'm definitely a minority. Uh-huh. The, that's not reflecting the community and the society at large. And so, while we say that technology interaction between the East and the West uh, will improve a lot of things, uh, break down some misunderstandings, some only, huh? mm-hmm. uh, and, and erase some uh, prejudices, which are good. Let's not go so far as to forget that human nature and the tribalism in human nature uh, may yet come back to haunt us. So you bring up that caveat as an as a footnote to which concern what what are the challenges for China's continued because growth? people still don't understand each other mm. sufficiently and people do not respect each other sufficiently it is easy to say that is the only reason because when you say that we should respect each, each other the, the world will clap yeah but it, you will it, never get Mm-hmm. You will improve on it, but you will never get there. And so how to manage global affairs today when the East and West are more or less relatively uh, strong and in the face of technology that 
throw people at each other, so to speak, and put us all in a pot. Uh, so there's a lot of good things that come, may come out of that. But let's be remindful that human nature may yet come back to bite us. And so the need, you may say, is huge in order to better U.S.-Asia relationship or East-West relationship or China-U.S. relationship. And for the last 28 years, I've devoted my life a lot of time I know. to doing exactly that. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and I think that I've watched a lot of things happening in the world. And East-West, Asia society, for example, is, I think, doing its part. Indeed. I used to serve on the board of East-West Center in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Many other organizations are all contributing. But that said, um, I do not underestimate um, the severity of the, uh, of, of the of problem. This, of this tribal nature. Yeah, of this tribal nature. You know, it's interesting, too, when you say that, because I think one of the curses, one of the unexpected consequences of all this technology is that social media, certainly, has promulgated this sense that it, it, it feeds to us information about those who are most like us. So the fact is we get, we get isolated much like the thing you described at the very beginning of our conversation several thousand years ago. People didn't know about each other. Well, in fact, that's what's happening. I mean, in our last election in the United States, there were many people not listening to each other uh, because they, their ecosystem was such that they only heard from the people that were like them. And I, I think this is something that, if nothing else, we, we've probably become dramatically aware of and have to, uh, all of us, no matter where we sit on the political scale, have to think about the importance of this necessity to know about each other, to know what it means to, to converse. I mean, really converse. Right. And there's no replacement of phys physical contact, face-to-face -face interaction, living in each other's country, learning each other's language, to think that technology will be able to melt all of us into one big pot, I think is a very dangerous assumption. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to mention around this whole issue? Because it's such a big one. But you've, got, you've got five more hours. <laughs> well, I do, but I don't think you do. You have a flight to catch. <laughs> I do. But is there anything else that you'd like to just comment on? You asked me about my optimism about China. Mm -hmm. Um, I think China, number one, uh, if you were to look at Chinese history for the last 3,000 years, 4,000 years, it has been one of the most peaceful countries in the world. It is, as a professor from MIT, uh, a Caucasian general environment revolution, PYE, P -Y -E, his name is South Chinese history, once said, I respect him very much, unfortunately he died. He said the best definition, he gave the best definition of China. He said China is a civilization which pretends to be a nation state. Oh. It is not a nation state in the 18th, 19th century Europe. It's not in that way. China is a civilization that happened to be quite advanced. It started somewhere around the Yellow River, grew gradually, influenced its neighbors. For example, for the last, uh, since the Tang Dynasty, which is about over a thousand years, there has been uh, 
tens of thousands, Jews living in the center of China, in a, in a province called Henan, in I've a, heard in about a county this. called Kaifeng, mm -hmm. right? Did the Chinese kill them? No. Let live. Just don't cause trouble. Mm -hmm. In the Song Dynasty, which is what, 800 years ago, all the way to the Ming Dynasty, there were 300,000 Arabs that went through the Sea Lake, Silk Road by sea, and lived in southeast China, in, Fu in southern China, uh, uh, southern Fujian province. Mm. Did the Chinese kill them? No. Let live. As long as you don't cause trouble, it's okay. And so, people today say, but we don't know what's China's intention. It's fools and ignorant people, as far as I'm concerned, that say that. Read history. Uh, so, China can be the only other strongest guarantor of global peace together with the United States. The two of them working together. If EU get its acts together, which I doubt, mm. would be the third leg. It's always mm -hmm. better to have a three-legged stool than a two. Indeed. But to be pragmatic, the United States and China working together is the best, best guarantor of global peace. And if you're a gambling man, will that happen? Um, I don't mean to, to, to opt out, take the easy way out. I think the chance is really 50-50. A lot of people say, hey, Donald Trump is going to be bad for U.S.-China relations. I'm not too sure. Let me tell you why. Twenty years ago, China was five foot one. America was seven foot six. Two aircraft carriers. Today, I just had lunch with a four-star admiral from the United States. Oh. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he was probably what the guy who parked the two uh, aircraft carriers outside of Taiwan oh, straight uh -huh. in 1996. Uh -huh. And there's nothing China could do about it. Because in, because in 1996, China was five foot one. And America was seven foot six. You can slap a five foot one around. Ten years ago, China was six foot one. A seven foot six can still slap six foot one around. But today, China is seven foot one. Now, America is still seven foot six. But does a seven foot six want to pick on a seven foot one? There are consequences to whatever you do. And so, that's why I'm not overly pessimistic. I know all the, you know, issues and potential mm -hmm. problems and all that stuff. But overall, I think that your China relationship should be fine. But that said, that is only in a political and, and, and military sense. We are not making headways. We should be understanding each other. Couldn't agree more. Right? Mm -hmm. And build relationships so that together, along with, of course, to be politically correct, EU, India, Indeed, uh, yeah. Japan, yeah, 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 and wherever yeah. else, right? Yeah. To, to be a guarantor of world peace. But let's face it, the reality is size matters. Susan, you know that I'm a small man. I walk into a room, nobody notices. If I'm Yao Ming, <laughs> I walk into a room, everybody notices. Well, everybody notices Yao Ming, right? yes. <laughs> so, so when China is seven foot one, you have no choice. But notice. Pay attention, yeah. And so, if the seven foot six and the seven foot one would work together, big stuff happens. A lot of good mm -hmm. can take mm -hmm. place in the world. Well, that's my dream. This might be a good note on which to end then. And I, I really appreciate this. Has been 
Yes, just a terrific conversation. I so appreciate it, Ronnie. And um, thank you for participating in this Asia in the West podcast. And I hope we can continue it at some point. Thank, thank you. you. time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast. That's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast. And my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.